0: Hi, I'm Kevin Lermer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers.
1: And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Associate Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast.
0: We will be coming to you every two months with a preview of the next issue of Poets and Writers magazine, along with interviews with the contributors and writers featured in the magazine, authors reading from their new books featured in our column, page one, audio excerpts from our new series of events, Poets for Writers Live, and conversations with other members of the editorial staff of Poets for Writers Magazine.
1: And we're coming to you from our office, which is located in Lower Manhattan. We're at 90 Broad Street on the 21st floor. And we're actually recording this in Kevin's office, uh, where we are surrounded by so many books.
0: Many books, many stacks of books. I actually was able to find... A little room for some microphones in here. And we
1: have the new
0: uh, issue of the magazine out.
1: Hot off the presses.
0: May, June, the writing
1: contest issue.
0: So, Melissa, you uh, worked a lot on the special
1: section. I did. Um, And so every year for this special section, we try to feature something different um, about writing contests. And for this issue, we um, focused on the judges, frequent judges of writing contests and recent winners. You know, the winners talked about how winning has affected their career, what losing feels like, and then offered advice to writers. And the judges talked about what they look for in a manuscript, um, how they narrowed down a pool of potentially, you know, great manuscripts, and also offered advice. Some of the judges I talked to were, uh, included C.D. Wright, Stuart Dibbock, uh, Kamiko Hahn, Andrew Monson, Dinty W. Moore, a lot of really great and prolific writers and judges.
0: Great. So is there any advice that really uh, jumped out at you?
1: So C.D. Wright had a really great quote about um, what she looks for in a manuscript, and she said, um, I want to experience a language in which I can feel the poet's own hand, own breath, own lexicon. I want, as Vic Chestnut sang, to have a sustained feeling. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was pretty pretty cool. Kimiko Han offered a really interesting take on how she narrows down submissions, which is actually um, the method that she employs in her writing workshops. So she says, As I read through the collections, I see what a writer does with closure. Often the end is where the writer gives up instead of moving toward resonance. She also then talks about subject um, of a collection. She says, if the collection has an overarching subject, I look to see how the writer is engaged, i.e. just on the idea level or if the relationship between subject and writer has been consummated. So I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty specific. You know, I think it's easy for people who are judging these contests to just say, send your best work. And, you know, you you hear that refrain a lot. But um, I feel like these judges really offered something specific and personal.
0: That's great. And that's sort of what we want to do with this, uh, this annual section on writing contests is give a little bit of insight um, into the ways that these decisions are made. In addition to our package of articles about writing contests, we also have a couple of really great interviews with authors, uh, the first of which is with Mark Doty. Uh, Mark Doty is the author of 11 poetry collections, including Fire to Fire, New and Selected Poems, which won the National Book Award for Poetry in 2008, and his new book, Deep Lane, published by Norton this month. He's also written a number of memoirs, including Dog Years, which was a New York Times bestseller, as well as some brilliant books on writing, such as The Art of Description, which was published by Graywolf Press in 2011. So the interview was conducted by, by Maya Popa, who is our former editorial fellow, before Nick. Uh, We set up a photo shoot with Dodie at his apartment in Manhattan, which was filled with wonderful art and two very energetic dogs, I would say.
1: Very energetic. Uh, And that was really fun. Um, That was actually my first photo shoot. um, And it was really interesting. We had, um, so it was at Mark's apartment. Uh, Our art director, Murray Greenfield, was there. One of our photographers, Tony Gale, um, shot Mark. And we got to set up a couple different shoots, and Mark was totally game, yes, even though was, we came in and destroyed his apartment <laughs> a little that's bit. Right, that's right. Uh, and his dogs were very friendly. It's always
0: really interesting to set up these photo shoots in an author's home or apartment or sometimes their office uh, because it really gives a different perspective on them as people. And I think it really adds something to the magazine to be able to see – uh, you know, a writer's home and see the, the books on their shelves and the art on their walls.
1: Where they work. Exactly. Um, you know.
0: Yep. And I'm always very grateful to the authors, of course, because essentially we invade their place for, <laughs> you know, two, three, sometimes four hours. <laughs> uh, Move all furniture of, around. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and and um, all of them are really good sports about it. Uh, so... Um, I think we got some really great shots, and you can see those in the new issue. In between shots, I sat down with Mark Doty and asked him about his new book of poems, his writing about poetry, and the book he's currently writing about Walt Whitman, What is the Grass?
2: Chin down just a little.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think I might try and bring a little bit more light through the blinds. Interesting. What do we think? I think we got this angle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've beaten it to death. You've beaten it to death.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for letting us uh, invade your home. It's a beautiful <laughs> home here. Thank you, Kevin. It's now, kind of fun to, to rearrange things? It makes me see it a
4: new way. Absolutely.
0: So um, I know that you also have a home on Long Island. Right? Mm-hmm. South Fork, Long Island.
4: It, it, yes, in South Fork.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And I know that because it factors into the title of the new book. Is That's that right. correct?
4: Deep Lane is a road in Amagansett, which is about a mile from my house. Um, it's a really handsome little country road, very, very short, I, uh, probably not even half a mile long. But truthfully, what I really love is the name, It's those, those two monosyllables and the two long vowels and the deep lane, it seems like a mantra to me yeah. to send you somewhere else. Right. And did you did you write a lot of the poems at that house? Or yeah, really? I have a garden there, which has become really important to me. It's a, um, very dreamy space. It's, it's long and narrow, and when you look at the house from the front, from the road, you can't see it. And as soon as you walk around it, it goes up this slope, big maple and oak trees, and it has a feeling of um, being very far away from anywhere. Yeah. And it just somehow calls me, calls my imagination downward, and I, and I find myself thinking about the roots and the, the source of life there and. We're so surrounded by other creatures, right. deer, turkeys, we have box turtles, um, many, many kinds of birds. And this feeling of participating in a world that's much, in a way, much broader than, than my city life. I mean, obviously, this is broader in terms of humanity and culture. But there, the diversity of kinds of life and the way that you are inevitably part of that you know right. we have a great horned owl now who's been there all through the fall and part of the winter and just hearing that voice night after night you know right. threading through whatever we're thinking about so the, hoo, 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 becomes um very you know it's a really different experience than hearing the sirens outside right
0: right right. Yeah. right. and the, the the garden at this house also it's a recurring scene in, the, in mm-hmm. the, the series of poems, uh, *Deep Lane*. Too.
4: I, I love. I've been a gardener for a long time. This is about my fourth garden, I guess, maybe fifth, and it's the biggest one I've ever had, the most ambitious, and I didn't actually, I didn't start from scratch. There was already a garden there, which means you have to move a lot of things. It's all wrong. You have to shift things around. There's much about this beautiful and the fish pond. It's wonderful trees. But also, just the work of making it mine has been really important to me over the last few years. And as I, my writing studio, you will build it behind the house. And one of the great things about this house, it's a very modest little 1930s or 40s cottage. But it has three little tiny houses behind it. And when I first saw it, I thought, it's McDowell. <laughs> <laughs> my, my own little artist here. <laughs> right. And so my writing house sits in the middle of the garden. And I have this, I can work in there. I can look out the windows, leave the door open when it's warm, and look into the garden. And I feel like what's, it's hard to explain, is I feel like what's coming toward me and up through my feet and through my hands into the laptop where I work is through energy from that garden. Right. It's kind a connection to that yeah. that really makes me want to work. Right. Like right. It's as if... The images that fuel the poems often come from right there.
0: Uh, it reminds me of another uh,
4: sort of voracious uh, poet gardener, Stanley Cruz. Absolutely. Right? He was a good friend of mine. And Did, was he? Stanley's garden was such an extraordinary place. It was smaller than mine, but enormously intricate. And it had, you could never see all that it was. You had to Move around, and there was a kind of circular path around it. And Stanley would lead you to this circular path, and he would point things out. He'd I mean, be a sort of dank, little mossy area, and he'd say, "Now that's the gate of hell, where Persephone went." And then you'd come up, to, you know. And this is a tree where so and so was enlightened. And he would have a whole little mystic dream about it. It was an amazing place. That's great. That's great. Um... So
0: and, and that sort of, uh, when I think of Stanley Kunitz, I, I, it leads me to this next question, which is sort of, you know, you are a terrific spokesperson for oh, poetry. You. you know, your, um, your craft essays are very insightful. You're a chancellor for the Academy of American Poets. You, you just speak very, uh, very uh, succinctly and uh, beautifully about the art form. And I was just wondering sort of if you feel like that is a uh, sort of an integral role as a poet to be sort of a steward of the,
4: the art form? Well, in, in one way or another, you know, I, I don't think, I would never say all poets should fulfill the same role, but it seems to me that if you're going to be a poet in America, you also have a certain uh, responsibility to be an ambassador for poetry. We, we know we live in a culture where many people love poetry, but don't talk about it, or they have favorite poems, but don't necessarily buy any. Um, I think many people who care about the art or could care about the art feel alienated from it and so it just seems like that's often a part of our work in the world to keep saying what poetry is and what it offers us right. why should we care about it and right. why do we why should we have it in our homes why should it become part of our lexicon for understanding experience right. for thinking about our lives right. so I actually really enjoy that work because uh, I don't feel that I'm battering my head against an unresponsive door. And When I am talking about the art and what it can do for people, it seems to me people really meet me with that. I'm- happy with the openness I receive. And I see that particularly from young people. I, I, the culture has changed so much in the last, you know, maybe 20 years, um, where I used to feel more of a sense of resistance about the idea of poetry, that it was something um, academic, difficult, it, it belonged to the past. I don't think young people feel that way at all now. I, I feel much more eagerness and interest. How interesting. Do you see
0: that? Can you, can you actually see that in the in sort of popular culture? more um, now than...
4: Well, I think you see it reflected in indie music yeah. and the way that there's a real interest in the individual, the one-off, the quirky, the thing that doesn't seem assembled by a corporation. And I think kids sense that they are being offered a slate of marketing choices by a focus group somewhere. And that when they encounter... Poet, poem, a song, a work of art, they're encountering something made by one person who's, right. who's making her mark in time, you know, and, and not um, just simply trying to sell you something that we've all agreed is good. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Interesting.
0: Okay, uh, tell me a little bit about the book uh, that you're working on
4: now. The, oh, sure. Women. Um, I've, I've been working on this book for the longest time. Um, it is called What is the Grass? And it's a memoir about reading Walt Whitman and appreciation of his work and life, not in a you know scholarly sense, a literary critical sense, but, but one poet talking about his relationship to another. Whitman is a great hero to me. I think he was one of the bravest people who ever lived. I, I think his poems open such incredible territory. He had the courage to speak of all kinds of matters human that you know, just weren't being directly addressed in the poetry of his day. He also was an incredible inventor. You know, he basically made American free verse. And what you see in some parts of Song Myself are the first iterations of a kind of poetry where the poet is thinking through the poem and images lead us forward. And it's not at all about received form, but about making a form appropriate to the content of the poem. He was also... Um, a problematic character. He was a huge self-promoter. He uh, wrote his own reviews. He uh, lied about various (laughs) things. Um, He wrote a lot of very weak poetry uh, later in his life, particularly, um, in part because his health declined over the course of his life, especially after his years as a nurse in the Civil War, a major stroke, but in part because he also really wanted to be liked. And it's very difficult to be a radical, a sexual revolutionary, a prophet of of a new order, and be popular, right? And he wanted both of those things very, very much. He, at one point, said he wished he had been an orator instead of a poet, because he would have reached more people. I think that impulse to uh, be a leader, to to be um, the good, gray poet, uh, which to my mind is an awful thing to be called, (laughs) and he liked that, uh, is one that didn't serve him well. That said, he wrote um, poems that at this moment someone is reading in any language in the world into which poetry is translated. Uh, Poems that seem as alive right now as they did the day they were written. So I am trying to think about the mysteries of that life and what makes those poems so compelling. I am uh, also thinking about how uh, my obsessions, my interests, overlap with him. I've always been Intrigued by the relationship between the one and the man, the individual and the whole. And he's marvelous thinking about that. Uh, where does the self reside? Are we independent beings or are we part of a school of a swarm? Uh, he's also a person who thinks about erotic life in really refreshing and vital ways. And that's important to me, so that's part of this book, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about um, the possibility of the poem as a, a social act that might bring people together, that might change things. So my book is turning all that around. Okay. And you, know, you can see why it's taken me a long time to write it, because it's, <laughs> it's kind of insanely ambitious. I think I have finally just now found the form. And after about five years of carrying this thing around, it's now moving forward. And I've sworn I'm going to have a draft done by the end of this year, so yeah, that's going to happen. Okay,
0: excellent. Thank okay. you very much. My pleasure. Yeah.
4: Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely.
0: And we have truly invaded your home. Oh, it's totally fine. you know, it. Yeah,
4: good. Uh, you know, imagine if it were more cluttered.
0: Another interview in the new issue of the magazine is with Maggie Nelson. And unfortunately, we weren't able to attend that photo shoot because she lives in Los Angeles, where she teaches at CalArts.
1: Maggie's new book, The Argonauts, will be published in May by Graywolf Press. Maggie writes these really amazing books that don't conform to our typical notions of genre or form. Um, I really became aware of Maggie's work when Wave Books published Blue back in 2009. Um, It's a collection of 240 prolonged moments in which she examines her obsession with the color blue. In The Argonauts, Nelson mixes prose with poetic insights and critical analysis to create a kind of hybrid memoir um, in which she examines marriage, the modern family, personal identity, sexuality, and her relationship with the artist Harry Dodge, who is fluidly gendered.
0: Contributor Michelle Philgate, who interviewed Neil Gaiman for us a couple of years ago, flew out to California and spent an afternoon with Maggie. So you can check that out in the new issue of the magazine, along with another installment of reviewers and critics by Michael Takens. This time, Michael interviews Ron Charles of the Washington Post. Uh, he's a great reviewer, of course, and many people know him on Twitter. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Yeah, he, he's got a he's got a pretty well known presence on Twitter, and he um, in the article he talks. In the interview, he talks uh, a bit about um, having such a public presence as a critic.
0: Right. Michael asks him, do you enjoy social media? How useful is it for your job? And Ron responds, something about my nervous personality responds to social media, but its usefulness is radically overstated, and its effect on my life has been almost entirely negative. So much wasted time, so much fruitless flacking, So much despair that I'm not being liked or shared or retweeted enough. The whole enterprise fills me with shame. (laughs) He's, of course, uh, talking a bit tongue-in-cheek there, but uh, he's got a lot of followers. A
1: lot of followers.
0: Yes, he does. We also have a new installment of the Savvy Self Publisher by Deborah Englander. And this is a column that we started, uh, I would say, a year ago. I think it was a year ago, and she interviews a self-published author, and then she interviews two publishing professionals, so an agent or an editor or a publicist, and they do a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking. So they take a look at what the experience of the self-published author was, and uh, you know, comment on what they think he or she did right, uh, what perhaps they could have done differently, that sort of thing. And this issue, uh, Deborah interviews the self-published author Beau Phillips, who was a former radio DJ. Uh, And he self-published a book called I Killed Pink Floyd's Pig, Inside Stories of Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And he self-published that in July 2014. And it's sort of his insider's view of, you know, these rock and roll bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd uh, and just like hanging out with them on, you know, flights or at the radio station, that sort of thing. So um, you know a little bit about Rock and roll, don't you, Melissa? <laughs>
1: um, a little bit, but you know, nothing, nothing so romantic. Uh,
0: what's what's the name of your band?
1: <laughs> I am in a band uh, based in Brooklyn, and we are called Self Help, which is was named after uh, the short story collection by Laurie Moore. Uh, I am a big Laurie Moore fan, <laughs> and that's where that came from. So Excellent. we are a literary rock band. Excellent.
0: So, is, is are you going to self publish an insider's account of being in a, in a I don't know. I don't Hip know. Brooklyn band.
1: Not yet. Not yet. Maybe Maybe f- a few years down the road once we've amassed a little more, um, you know, scandal and, uh, and party stories. <laughs> okay. So we'll look for that. Okay. Good. Uh,
0: also, we have another installment of Agent Advice, and this time we have Danielle Svetkov. Uh, she is an agent in San Francisco, and she answers readers' uh, questions about publishing and agents. Uh, And I just want to she's Danielle is very funny and uh, she's very she offers very thoughtful answers, but also uh, they're they're quite humorous, too. Um, So I just want to read one of them. Marsha from Uniondale, New York, writes "Are queries sent via snail mail viewed any differently than those sent via email. And Danielle uh, gives a very thoughtful answer um and it's it's rather long but i just wanted to read a little bit of it she writes do i believe in snail mail yes i do for postcards love letters notes from camp condolences thank yous and estimated taxes but when it comes to queries send them by email it's a modern convenience that has eliminated the indignities of the sase which no honest human can claim to miss and when we agents love something sent via email we can reply immediately. We can transmit our unbridled joy and surprise with the speed of our unromantic cable connections. So that is also in the new issue.
1: Also, um, among uh, the many great articles that we have in the News and Trends section, um, we talk to Miwa Messer, who's the director of the Barnes & Noble uh, Discover Great New Writers program. And also, we have... A story by our very own Dana Isakawa, who's the assistant editor here at Poets and Writers, and she explores the fascinating intersection between video games and romantic poetry. So we have Dana here to talk a little bit about her experience writing that story.
0: That's right. Hi, Dana. Hi,
1: Dana.
5: Hi. Right. So, Elegy for a Dead World is a new creative writing video game that was launched last December by two indie. Uh, gaming companies based in Boston, Bond Games, and Pop Cannibal. And so in the game, you are a stranded space traveler, and you have landed in this deserted world, and you explore it. And there are three worlds in the game, and they're each based off of a British romantic poem, the three poems being Keats's sonnet, When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be, and Percy Shelley's sonnet, Ozymandias, and Lord Byron's poem, Darkness and you walk through these worlds, and they're really beautiful and apocalyptic. You go through plains and tundras and huts and towers, and as you're going through it, the game prompts you to write scenes for a story or stanzas in a poem. And then by the time you reach the end of the world, you can edit your entire poem or story and then publish it to the network where other players can read it.
1: So you actually played this game, right?
5: Yes, I did. I played it for um, several hours, actually.
1: (laughs) And are you new to gaming, or is this something that you enjoy uh, outside of um, research for articles?
5: Um, I, I like playing video games sometimes. I'm not an <laughs> avid player, but <laughs> I've played other games, and I know that this one is, is very different than other video games. You don't, um, you don't shoot any guns, you don't fight any monsters, you don't score any points, you don't interact with any other players. It's just you going very slowly through this world and trying to write.
1: Which could be interacting with a monster, and you know, some people might consider that. I tried, took a very, very brief stab at playing this game, Dana, when Dana was showing it to me, and I got really nervous about writing um, based on these prompts. So um, I think in the article, the one of the founders mentions that he he wanted to um, create a, sort of like a an encouraging space for writers. Um, did did you feel like that happened? Were you did you feel encouraged and inspired by what was what was thrown at you?
5: Yeah, usually for the most part, um, they provide you with prompts at the beginning of the game that you can choose from. Um, one of them might be like you're going to go through this world and you're going to write a letter to a loved one explaining what you see, or you are like the ruler who used to you know live in this land. What happened? Why is it deserted? So I mean, it gives you a lot of like ideas to kind of start out with, which is like helpful for making it easier. And then as you go along, it gives you, um, you know, like actual worded prompts. And as, as mentioned in the article, the founder said sometimes the prompts are written in like deliberately really simple language so that you feel, I can do better than this. I can write you know, more beautiful prose. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in there and do it, And which is sometimes how I felt.
0: <laughs> awesome. So Dana, when you're not playing video games or editing the news and trends section, you also write the grants and awards section.
5: Yes, that's right. Um, I write Grants and Awards and conferences and residencies for the magazine, which I guess is a very different type of game. But for (laughs) our May-June issue, we have 104 new, uh, not new, but 104 deadlines that you can apply to, with deadlines in between May 15th and July 15th. And we have nine new awards that we've never listed before in Grants and Awards. And one of them that I think is pretty cool, which you guys should check out, is the Kurt Johnson Prose Awards, and that's run by December Magazine. And December Magazine um, relaunched in December 2013, and it's now based in St. Louis. And the prizes are given for, um, there are two prizes, one for a short story and one for an essay. And uh, the winners will receive $1,500 each and will also be published in December Magazine. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates will judge in fiction, and Albert Goldbarth will judge in nonfiction. Uh, the deadline is June 15th, the entry fee is $20, and the word uh, length is 8,000 words for both the story and the essay. But as, as with all of our listings, um, you should visit the website for complete guidelines. And for December Magazine, that's www.decembermag.org. So good luck with your submissions. Great.
0: And uh, speaking of awards, uh, you and Melissa both went to the Story Prize ceremony, right?
5: Yes, that's right. Melissa and I went in March to uh, the award ceremony in New York City.
1: Yeah. So the Story Prize is is a really great time. Um, we've gone for the past couple of years. Um, it's the largest prize given for a short story collection. Um, it's twenty thousand dollars. And each year, um, you know, they get over 100 submissions, and they narrow it down to three finalists. And then at the ceremony, which is held at the New School in here in New York, um, all three finalists read a story um, from their collection. And then Larry Dark, the director, has a conversation on stage with, with each of them, um, and they talk about their process and their inspiration. And, you know, it's really cool. Um, and so this year, the finalists were... Elizabeth McCracken for her uh, collection Thunderstruck, Lori Moore for her collection Bark, and Francesca Marciano for her collection The Other Language. Right. Um, And uh, it was really exciting. And I got to sit across the aisle from Lori Moore, which you'll recall, you know, I'm a huge fan of. Um, And the winner was Elizabeth McCracken for Thunderstruck.
5: Right, yes, so Elizabeth McCracken, um, in her acceptance speech, she was very gracious and very, um, you know, surprised, she seemed, but she also made a special point to thank literary magazines and small presses. And so uh, we caught up with her right after the ceremony and asked if she could speak a little more to that. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for coming. Nice to see you. Um, So, hi. Congratulations on winning the Story Prize. Thank you very much. Um, So how do you feel now that you've won the prize? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, know, you know, remarkably
3: similar to, uh, to how I felt before <laughs> I won it, which is like really happy to be here, filled with self-loathing and nervousness and delusions <laughs> of grandeur,
5: and yeah, it's nice. But um, yeah, in your you know acceptance speech, you uh, thank both sellers as well as. Um, editors of literary journals and could you just maybe speak to that a little more um
3: yeah i mean i think I was especially thinking about editors of literary journals because i've been struggling with a series of novels um and literary journal editors have been have been lovely to me and have asked me if i had work at michael ray at zoetrope gosh 10 years ago now wrote to me at one point and said just after a novel of mine had crashed and burned and said "Do you have a short story and I went no but if you give me a couple of weeks I might be able to extract from this wreck a short story which is one of the stories in the collection and just you know literary magazine editors are are passionate about poetry and fiction in a world that theorizes that people are not that interested in short stories and poetry. Um, And that's amazing to me. And, you know, there are like new literary magazines being founded every week and people always say, does the world really need another literary magazine? And I always think, yes, it does. It needs another place where people who really love fiction and poetry and creative nonfiction and visual art can send their work and have it... Loved and sent out into the world. It's a much, much more efficient dissemination of work than book publishing because it's it's quicker and there's more of it and and it's less buffeted by commercial worries. And just lastly, uh, what are you going to do now? <laughs> I'm going to have a drink across the street.
5: Sounds <laughs> great. <of> sure.
3: <laughs>
0: One of the books featured in page one, where new and noteworthy books begin, is Matt Rohrer's poetry collection, Surrounded by Friends, published by Wave Books in April. So page one is a feature of the News and Trends section where we select a dozen new books. So we have poetry collections, we have novels, we have short story collections, we have memoirs, essay collections, and we reprint the first sentence of the book, hence where new and noteworthy books begin. And we also uh, find out the name of the agent, um, if the author had one, um, the editor, uh, and the publicist.
1: And then we also put together um, a podcast series based on that section for each issue. So we pick uh, two or three authors, um, and we reach out to them, and they record themselves reading uh, a handful of poems or a short story or an excerpt uh, from their memoir. And then we put together this uh, podcast based on that reading. Um, So Matt Rohr is one of our featured uh, readers for this series. Uh, So Matt recorded uh, five poems from his new book. And um, all five of those poems are available on our website and on SoundCloud. Um, But we're going to listen to a couple of them now.
2: The photographs of Allen Ginsberg at the Gray Gallery, New York City. Photographs of young people growing old are like lights on in a tall building, and the sun still in the sky. It is a very special melancholy to be replaced on the streets, surrounded on all sides by windows, a break to text. Are you high? Good. The Ginsberg photos are great. They are much better than this poem, where a traveler takes a self-portrait beneath the arch. And yet there is something about a photograph that poisons the heart. Poem for Edna St. Vincent Millay. The next thing I'm going to say is a secret. In World War II, they told Edna St. Vincent Millay about all the invasions, so she could write a poem for each one. A poem like a bottle of champagne to be smashed against a ship before it sails, and everyone sat and listened to the poem on the radio and imagined things in his or her mind that the words weren't really saying. Rocking back and forth in a chair, steam rising from dinner, She spread all her poems out across new england acres of them dreadful she said everyone has her own version of a lonely life the temperature drops 20 degrees the kids are in bed a wind blows through all the windows at once knocking the hanging pots and pans together like a gentle quake we hear what we want to hear the invasion has been called off the pots and pans ding gently in the kitchen the invasion is what we want it to be this is a poem you can smash against it before it sails then finish your dinner it is not one of the saddest poems ever written Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote that it's called Lament only one person dies in it a poem where thousands of people die just isn't as sad
1: about Ben Percy. Ben Percy. When did Ben Percy first arrive on your radar? On my radar. On your radar.
0: Um, He was, uh, well, we we ran a profile of Ben in 2007. Okay. I think it was November, December 2007. And that was when his second story collection Refresh Refresh came out. Uh, And that was a big, that made a big splash. Right. Uh, And then about two years later, or maybe just a year later, he sent me um, the first of his craft essays. Um, I think we, we published his first one in 2009, July, August 2009, Good if memory. I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, we've been, he has a very distinctive voice, and he loves Jaws. <laughs> he
1: loves Jaws,
2: he, he loves Star Wars, he loves, loves Indiana Jones. It,
0: yes. But Jaws appears. He uses Jaws as a model for narrative. Yeah, it's what uh, he returns to. Again, it's sort of again. his anchor. Yeah, <laughs> Yep. So to speak, it's his rosebud.
1: It's his rosebud. But Ben Percy has a distinct voice, both on paper and in real life. Nice,
0: Yes, he does. Um, and those... yeah, and I've I've only heard. I've I've I had drinks with him at AWP one year. <laughs> And that was when I first, that's when I got his voice in person for the first time. When I think of it, I think fish can hear him. <laughs> <laughs> I think my goldfish would hear him if he were it's like a anywhere s- nearby. It's like a sonar. Yeah. It's a unique voice, both in person and on the page, which is why we have published a number of his essays Um, And I believe Grey Wolf Press is going to be issuing a collection of those um, next year. Excellent. So, um, yes, Ben has a very distinct voice, and I think it really lends itself to singing, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) At least that's what he claims. Uh, He got in touch with me and uh, said that he was interested in making a literary remake of the song Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys
1: which uh, some of you may know was made popular by Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson on their 1978 record, Waylon and Willie. Waylon and Willie. Um,
0: now, for you, those of you unfamiliar with the song, um, I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> and this is, this is the, the sort of overview of that song. It says, the narrator warns mothers not to let their children become cowboys because of the tough and busy life of cowboy culture. Which is so true. So and true.
1: Um, so What's the
0: same could be said of the writer's culture, I suppose. Tough.
1: It's tough.
0: It's tough and busy. And busy. So Ben knows, apparently, uh, a band, a really great band in Northfield, Minnesota, and they are called the Bratlanders. And uh, you, everyone really needs to go check out the photographs on uh, our website, um, so you can see the Bratlanders and Ben
1: in action. In
0: action, and and the beards are
1: <laughs> amazing. Yes, they amazing are amazing beards. They are. So this is Ben Percy with the Bratlanders singing, "Mamas don't let your babies grow up to be writers."
6: Riders ain't easy to love with their big fragile. They'd rather give you a palm than diamonds or gold. Flatbuts in envy and hate reading friends in the worthless MFA. He won't finish that memoir. anyway Mamas don't let your babies grow up like smoky old bars and dusty libraries, whiskey and wine, and the New York Times book review. Them that don't know him will think him an artist when really he's a wordy narcissist. The New Yorker won't have him, but his pride won't let him submit to the SANSAC review.
0: Ben Percy is quite clearly a productive and busy man very busy uh, not only does he have the the new novel out the Deadlands uh, but he just took over the Green Arrow series at DC Comics Which is awesome. I saw. Um, and the Stars Network is developing a series that he created called black gold a crime drama um, and he's also adapting *Red Moon*, which is his previous novel, uh, for Fox TV. Wow! So he's he's busy. He's a busy man. And I guess that's why you know he was drawn to a song um, about the tough and busy life of a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so tough. Um, so tough. But uh, I'd like to hear more from from the man himself. So let's call Ben. Let's call Ben. Ben, it's Kevin. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? <laughs> Good. How are you?
7: Not too shabby.
0: All right. So Melissa Fallavino is here. Hey, Ben. Hey. How you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Hi. So you would laugh if you saw my office right now, where we have the most like thrown together podcast recording <laughs> equipment known to man. yeah yeah, yeah we, I, we
1: got two mic stands and Melissa's is like it's tearing. actually being held up by two hardcover books right now because it's, it's, it's stripped <laughs> so if I don't hold it up it falls down as I as I talk it just falls into my lap yeah. so it's uh it's a precarious situation yeah
7: Podcast, you guys might need to. If it proves to be popular, you might have to build your own recording studio.
1: Oh, well, I think
0: with the money that flows in after <laughs> we release this first episode, it's gonna—you know—it shouldn't be a problem.
7: So. <laughs> millions, millions. <laughs> that's right. Rocketed to stardom. No, no doubt, no doubt. You'll get nom-
0: nominated for a Grammy. I think so. I, you yeah. know, I don't think that's aiming too high. All right, Ben. So, um, thanks for the song. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so, why—why why did you record this song? so was this the um, the Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson version it is yeah, yeah That's, that was the one that inspired me great
5: when we
1: looked we looked that up to make sure we knew who, <laughs> who originally recorded it and I I'm pretty sure that my dad had that record it was either that or the Highwaymen I don't remember but I remember that recording playing in my my dad's truck when I was a kid yeah I grew up in
0: Now tell us about the Bratlanders
1: So I think that nice. has to happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, is this the first, I mean, is this your first foray into uh, songwriting and uh, recording?
7: I guess you could say that. I, you know, sing a mean karaoke. <laughs>
0: I was going to ask.
7: When, when i when I downed enough beers and at one time won a karaoke contest at AWP. prize was. Uh, a biography of Bruce Springsteen a ring, and a Ring Pop treasure to this day.
2: <laughs> Excellent, that Excellent. feels so right. <laughs>
0: so, are you? Um, you mentioned the uh, uh, the reading you're going to do in Northfield, there, or 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 nearby for the new new novel.
7: Yeah, this is going to be in Northfield at a bar, but sponsored by our local bookstore content. And hopefully we'll pack enough people in there to be at fire marshal capacity.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Are you going on a big tour for the book?
7: Pretty big. It's expanding by the minute. Uh, I'm not sure how many cities I'm hitting, but I should be on the road for about four or six weeks. And then uh, the events trickle off, but continue through the summer and fall great awesome do you want to talk
0: a little bit about the novel
7: it is a post-apocalyptic reimagining of the lewis and clark saga um so i grew up in oregon in the shadow of lewis and clark and i've always wanted to uh, write about them my mother gave me their journals when i was 12 uh and the inscription reads seek adventure uh
0: essays that you that we've published um i happen to notice that you seem to have a um a a great fondness for jaws is that is that
7: right (laughs) i've made i've made the joke before that i could teach any craft lesson uh through jaws (laughs) Um,
0: what is it about that movie that that what is it about that movie that um that speaks to you (laughs)
5: you know that's kind
7: of a ludicrous fear to have especially here in the landlocked midwest (laughs) i'm I'm constantly haunted by nightmares where sharks will even be you know cutting across the floor of my living room or uh traveling burrowing through the woods outside and and i guess it's that fear of the the unseen and the fear of something that is truly uh an alpha something that is a, a predator that could actually seek out humans and and make meat of them. Um, but it's also just the, the artistry of the film. Um, it's, it's brilliantly written. It's a, the film adaptation is superior to the novel. Um, the characters are unforgettable and I've watched them on screen so many times that they feel like neighbors or, or relatives of mine. And, uh, the, the speech that Captain Quint, played by Robert Shaw, gives about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis is, I think, the the greatest monologue in film history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could go on about (laughs) about the the craft (laughs) scene by scene, but but just those are some of my
0: overall impressions of awesomeness. Excellent. Uh, You you know, uh, my kids and I were playing the game the other night uh, Would You Rather? And uh, my son was asking would you rather be eaten by a bear or by a shark so i guess a good question <laughs> what do you think
1: oh is there a better option uh,
7: i think <laughs> i would go for
0: grizzly that's what i well actually no i said see, i said
7: see, shark. The unknown terror of, of not knowing when the shark is going to mm. strike mm. and and drowning as you're screaming like Ooh, that's yeah. too many levels of afraid that's I'd true rather just like get my head knocked off <laughs>
0: But I'm not sure that that the bear would be any quicker. It might. It just, At least
7: you know when it was going to hit. That's true. Yeah.
0: That's true. Yeah. Okay. You may have changed my mind. But <laughs> it made for some stimulating uh, dinner conversation. Let me tell you.
7: And then your your remains would be found, and, and you would go down as being the guy who was consumed by a grizzly apparently <laughs> Pretty awesome way to die. Whereas it's... if you die by a shark, they're probably you just mysteriously vanish. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's they never right. find you again. Anything else you want to talk about?
1: Any future plans for making more music?
7: <laughs> no media plans. <laughs> and arises if I if I win that Grammy, if I'm on stage, uh, you know, with Beyonce and Jay Z, then, then maybe, maybe.
0: I think we may have unwittingly launched a new, uh, you know, a new direction for your career.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks a all, lot, Ben. All
1: It always goes back
0: to Bruce. (laughs) That's right. All right. Thanks a lot, Ben. Hey, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.
1: And that is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast.
0: We'll be back in mid-June to preview the July-August issue, our annual agents issue.
1: All right. Wait, we never really talked about why we're called Ampersand.
0: That's true. We didn't. Ampersand, well, for those of you familiar with our logo... Uh, it is the very distinctive character, right smack dab in the middle of it. Right in the and, middle. And, uh, of course, Ampersand is what connects poets and writers. Nice.
1: Good one. You like that? Yeah, I did. I you that was good. Cool. Fine.
2: Ampersand is
5: produced by Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino with help from Jonathan Walsh. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear and Chris Zabriskie. To subscribe to the podcast and to check out photos, ephemera, and more, visit pw.org forward slash ampersand.